Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. In the Pew Bible, that's number 707. 707. Starting with verse 36. And I'm reading from the original version of the New of the Living Bible. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his home for lunch, and Jesus accepted the invitation. As I sat down to eat, a woman of the streets, a prostitute, heard that he was there and brought an exquisite flask filled with expensive perfume. Going in, she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping, with her tears falling down upon his feet, and she wiped them with off with her hair and kissed them and poured the perfume on them. When Jesus' host, a Pharisee, saw what was happening and who the woman was, he said to himself, This proves that Jesus is no prophet, for if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of woman this one is. Then Jesus spoke up and answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. All right, teacher, Simon replied, go ahead. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, $5,000 to one and $500 to the other. But neither of them could pay him back. So he kindly forgave them both, letting them keep the money. Which do you suppose loved him most after that? I suppose the one who had owed him the most, Simon answered. Correct, Jesus agreed. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look, see this woman kneeling here? When I entered your home, you didn't bother to offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the time I first came in. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has covered my feet with rare perfume. Therefore her sins, and they are many, are forgiven, for she loved me much, but one who is forgiven little shows little love. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then the men at the table said to themselves, Who does this man think he is going around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, well, let me get this right, right at the beginning. Kids are released to Kids Park. See, I didn't even start my sermon yet, and already the kids are released, so there you go. Well, I don't know about you, 
maybe you're like this too, but I don't like to get help. Anybody else that way? Don't like to get help? In fact, I don't, I don't really even like to receive sympathy. Uh, because in order to receive help or in order to receive sympathy, that has to admit that I have some sort of weakness. And I don't really like to admit weakness. In fact, I was raised or somehow I picked up growing up that I should be self-sufficient. I don't know if it's an American thing, a Midwestern thing, a rugged individualism thing, or just me, Uh, but I just really like people to believe that I am self-sufficient, that I can handle things on my own. But if you look at the teachings of Jesus, and if you look at the teachings of Christianity throughout history, admitting our sinfulness and pride Uh, and our need is actually at the heart of our faith. That is the the primary motivator for how we ought to live our lives. In fact, one of the greatest sins that Jesus identified was the attitude of self-sufficiency, that that we don't really need God. According to the Bible, self-righteousness and that uh, self-sufficiency actually kills faith, while humility and the ability to accept grace actually is what brings our faith to life. And the story that we're looking at today that Don just read is a case in point. Now, if you're not there already, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And we'll see uh, what it tells us about the importance of accepting forgiveness and living in gratitude. Now, this this, uh, story is actually pretty early still in the book of Luke. But it's actually far enough into Jesus' ministry that he already has developed a sort of history with the Pharisees. He's had some run-ins with them. And there's this growing tension that is happening between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what's interesting about Jesus and the Pharisees is that all of the sects, of all of the sects of Judaism at the time, whether it's the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sadducees, or the Pharisees, Jesus theologically would have aligned the most with the Pharisees. They would have agreed on the most things, and yet there were some very strong disagreements that they had, and these were the ones that he was most in conflict with, and we see that in all of the Gospels. Now, the core of their disagreement really had to do more with how they practiced their faith, and in this case, their disagreement had to do with ritual purity and associating with sinners. You see, the Pharisees were very concerned about things like ritual purity because they were very concerned about the rules. Now, this isn't a bad thing in and of itself. Well-placed rules can shape our actions and our attitudes. I mean, ask any parent, and, uh, and rules can actually bring order to the whole house. They can bring freedom, and so rules can be a good thing. But the problem is, is that focusing too much on the rules can actually cause us to lose sight of people, real people that God loves. And so the run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees were about this very thing. Jesus refused to allow the rules to separate him from the sinners and the outcasts, the ones who would make him ritually impure, because he said his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the question at hand was, which is stronger, sin or the grace of God? The Pharisees believed that being around sin would contaminate righteous people, but Jesus believed that the grace of God would cleanse sinners. The Pharisees kept their distance because of fear. Jesus drew closer because of love. And our story today shows this struggle playing out. And so we're going to start looking at it at verse 36. Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, what Luke says here is, seems pretty unremarkable to us. Uh, but Ken Bailey, an expert in Middle Eastern culture, says that it's actually what is not said that is important here. You see, there were cultural norms that would govern how you would greet a guest when you would invite them into their home. Uh, These rules or norms would communicate respect to your guests. It would communicate a sort of friendliness or even communicated the social status going on there. And so when you invited someone over to your house, as a sign of respect, you would follow three protocols. The first one was that you would greet them with a kiss. Now, Ken Bailey says that it's usually on the face, uh, and I'm not sure what exactly that means, like where else you would kiss someone, elbow, or I'm not sure, maybe, maybe on the hand, I suppose. Um, but you would, you would greet them with a kiss. Uh, after being seated then, the, the host would bring water and a towel for washing your hands and your feet, because you always had open sandals and very dusty roads, and so you wanted to be clean for when you ate. And so they would bring water and a towel. And then they would give you oil for your head. And in fact, you couldn't say grace uh, until you had the olive oil and everybody had applied it to their head. Now, in addition, there was one other sort of bit of protocol that would have come into play in this case. And that is when you would go to dinner, that the oldest person in the room would be the first one to sit down. They would choose their spot and then you would go uh, by, by age sitting down after that. And that was a sign of respect to the oldest person there. But notice that Jesus walked into the room and none of that happened. He just walked in and he sat down, which indicates that the Pharisee, the host, was disrespecting Jesus. They were not treating him as as anything special or actually even treating him with the common courtesy of the day. And so actually Jesus does something pretty provocative himself. He actually goes over to the table and he sits down despite the fact that it was highly unlikely that he was the oldest person in the room. And so there were cultural faux pas and there was disrespect being thrown all around the room at the time. Now, the the commentator Joel Green says that the way Luke sets up this scene is he's setting it up kind of like a, a Roman symposia. Basically, the Pharisees invited Jesus over for dinner, but what they really invited him over for was debate. Because that's what would happen. You would have a dinner, and then there would be this lively discussion of the issues of the day. And so Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus over to debate with him about the most likely religious rules. And so you can see more than just a sign of disrespect, more than just a hint of disrespect for Jesus. All right, Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, it doesn't explicitly, in in Don's translation in the New Living, it did say what her sin was. In the NIV and actually in the original language, it doesn't really say explicitly what her sin was. But you can tell uh, kind of universally and naturally, and, and every commentator agrees that she was a prostitute. She had a reputation in the city. In fact, she was a woman of the city is kind of how it, how it says it. Everybody knew it. She had this reputation. Okay? But this is where we start to see that Jesus was not like all of the other religious leaders. See, she had heard where Jesus was going to be, heard it through the grapevine, where Jesus was going to be, and she wanted to be there. 
Now, her experience would have dictated that if she knew that religious leaders were going to be in a particular place, that would be the last place she would want to be. Because if she were to go there, she would subject herself to ridicule, and they wouldn't want her there either because they would be afraid of being contaminated, ritually contaminated by her. And so she knew that by going to the home of a Pharisee that she was opening herself up to ridicule. But it didn't really matter to her. And the reason is, is that apparently at one point in, in, the, uh, in the past, the woman had an encounter with Jesus that changed her. She experienced Jesus' teaching about the grace of God and God's acceptance and love for sinners. And in Jesus, she found forgiveness and freedom. And so she bought, brought an expensive bottle of perfume as a gift to say thank you to Jesus. But I don't think she really planned out what was going to happen next. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, we oftentimes conflate this story with similar stories in the other Gospels where a woman comes in and and anoints Jesus' feet. But this is actually a story that's unique to the book of Luke. And the reason is, is because uh, Ken Bailey says that, that in these other stories, you have the woman who comes in after the dinner has already been started. But in this case... The woman is already there when Jesus walks into the house. Now, of course, we want to know, well, how in the world did she get into the house of a Pharisee? Well, in those days, the the culture was a little bit different. When there were large crowds of people in someone's house, the house was much more open. And so she could have walked in there. And because the room was very busy, people didn't really even notice her there. And so she could go in there and she could kind of hide out in the corner waiting for Jesus to come. But this is an important point. Because what happened was, was that she was already there. She saw Jesus come in, and she saw that none of the normal protocols happened. And she, and she saw this, and she was, she was offended. She was hurt. She was, she was bothered by this. Because she's watching the Pharisees disrespect the man that changed her life. And she's so moved that she begins to follow the rules herself in a way that even the rule-following hosts couldn't do or refuse to do. Okay, remember the three steps of the protocol. The kiss, the water and the towel for washing, and then the oil to top it off. Well, because of how Jesus was sitting, she couldn't get to his face to kiss it, and so she started kissing his feet. And because she didn't have water for washing, she used her tears. And then she did something really out of bounds. She let down her hair. Now, commentators tell us that in those days, especially in Jewish culture, but in Middle Eastern culture in general, there were strict rules about when women could let down their hair, and it was basically never in public, and, uh, because it was seen as being sexually provocative. And, and this is actually an attitude that in many places in the Middle East uh, continues on to today. So, for instance, in the mid-1990s, the prime minister of Iran is quoted as saying this, It is the obligation of the female to cover her head because women's hair exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead, and corrupt men. And so, women, you need to be careful with your vibrations. See, the fact is, is that every culture has their standard of what is sexually provocative, and in that culture, this was it. And so for her to let her hair down was giving some signals that 
I think the Pharisees wouldn't have appreciated. But, you know, at that point, she'd heard it all before. She'd been subject to all of the ridicule. People have said everything that they were going to say about her. And so she just didn't care. Because she saw that they disrespected this man who saved her life. And so since they didn't give Jesus water or a towel, she found another way to clean his feet, even when it would be misinterpreted by the religious leaders. But you see, one of the things that they could all agree on was that by this action, just of letting her hair down, she was making an ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. And then since she didn't have olive oil, she took the perfume, and did, which was far, something that was far more valuable and expensive, and applied it to his feet. See? So do you see the scene there? You can, you can see just in, in her actions the gratitude that she has. And she does what the Pharisees refused to do. She recognized who Jesus was and made sure that he got the honor that he, and, and the respect that he deserved. Now, of course, this didn't sit very well with Simon. Verse, uh, verse 39, Simon is the host, by the way. It doesn't mention his name yet, but, but Jesus later does. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now what this shows in Simon's reaction is that his fear of contamination was greater than his understanding of the grace of God. The fact that Jesus didn't rebuke the woman for letting her hair down, or especially didn't rebuke her for touching him, in public was proof that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. If he was a prophet, he would have known that this was a prostitute. He would have known that he wasn't allowed to let her touch him because he would become ritually impure. How in the world could he claim to be a prophet? Now, ironically, Jesus showed that he was a prophet because Simon didn't say this out loud, and yet Jesus knew. He knew what Simon was thinking. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. That wasn't a hard question, was it? I mean, if we heard that parable, I think probably every single one of us would answer the same way that the Pharisee did. It's pretty obvious. But it's the application that gets to be hard for us. It's hard to swallow. Here's how Jesus explains it in verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now, I want to make a distinction here because Jesus isn't talking about the actual number of sins. He's actually talking about whether or not we can recognize our need. See, I can guarantee you that Jesus viewed the Pharisees' sins as just as great as this woman's sin and maybe even more. 
In other words, they were just as in need of forgiveness as she was. And it was just that their self-righteousness blinded them to that fact. See, Jesus would agree with the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he would also agree with Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so the truth of the matter is, is that we are all in the same boat, every single one of us. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. And yet we often, though, often act as though our sins are not as bad as other people's sins. In fact, I've come to distinguish between two different kinds of sins, what I call sins of the flesh and sins of religion. Sins of the flesh are the things that traditionally come to mind when we think about sins. When we, uh, uh, when we hear that word, we usually think about things like drunkenness and sexual sins and stealing and murder, and, and certainly those things are sins. But we tend to avoid the sins of religion. Now, I'm not one who would say that religion in and of itself is a bad thing. I actually think it's a a good thing. But it does come with its own unique set of temptations for us. You see, sins of religion are the ones that we don't tend to think of as sins because they also tend to be more sins of omission than commission. Things that we should do, but we don't do. You know, things like caring for the poor. or, Or sometimes they're more respectable sins like pride or self-righteousness or looking down on other people that we identify to be greater sinners than, than we are. Or it might even be the tendency to focus on our outward appearance rather than on real heart change. Okay? These are the sins that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of in Matthew 23. And while both kinds of sin are actually sin, I think sins of religion are actually far more dangerous. And the reason is, is that sins of the flesh can oftentimes lead people to hit rock bottom. Sins of the flesh will oftentimes lead people feeling empty and hopeless and in a world of hurt. But when our sins are sins of religion, we can go on for years without ever even realizing it. We can spend an entire lifetime clinging to our sins of religion, feeling really good about ourselves, and even colluding with other believers in our judgment of sinners, rather than reaching rock bottom, actually, in some circles, we're actually applauded for them. Now, I believe in personal righteousness. I believe in holiness. See, but the problem with Simon's attitude is that he lived as though there were some people who were so bad that they needed forgiveness and that there were some people, people like him, who only owed a little bit and could probably just pay it back themselves. But the sleight of hand in Jesus' story is that we are all in the place of the man with the greater debt. We just don't all recognize it. And so what Jesus was calling Simon to was self-examination and humility. And he did that because he knew that recognizing how much we owe actually changes our perspective. It changes our actions. And this is what Jesus' parable did here. With this parable, Jesus highlighted the difference between the attitude of the Pharisees and the attitude of the woman. Okay, and you can see the comparison here in verse 44. Okay, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. It's your house, so this is your responsibility, by the way. And you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has put perfume 
on my feet. And what's remarkable is that the woman didn't just do what Simon failed to do, but she went beyond even the required customs. She made an over-the-top expression of love and gratitude because of what Jesus did for her. And that's why Jesus ends by saying this to Simon, whoever has been forgiven loves little, been forgiven little loves little, but whoever has been forgiven much loves much. I think we oftentimes don't realize just how powerful things like grace and forgiveness are. In the novel and later movie, uh, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo writes about Jean Valjean, who is a convict who spent 19 years in prison after stealing bread. And one of the things we know is that when you spend a lot of time uh, in prison, uh, it tends to harden you, and he became a hardened and heartless man. Now, at that time, all convicts, when they got out of prison, they had to carry a, a card, an identification card. And so when he was released, he had a very hard time uh, finding someone who would allow him to stay in their place, and at least until he found a kind bishop who took him in. But one night after the bishop fell asleep, Valjean sees the opportunity to pillage the bishop's home, and he makes off with a bunch of expensive silver. And I brought a clip to show what happens after that. No one would expect the bishop to react that way. And and this is the power of grace. You see, while sometimes we believe that the power to change actually comes in punitive justice or harsh words, we, we think that punishment is the thing that actually changes people, but in reality, it's grace, which is why the Apostle Paul says that it's, your, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it did. In this case, Jean Valjean dedicates the rest of his life to works of mercy within his city. Now, most of us have to admit that we probably wouldn't respond the way the bishop did there. But at the same time, though, The fact that an act of grace and forgiveness like this would change someone so completely does not come or should not come as a surprise to any one of us. Just like the response of the woman in the story. In verse 28, Jesus turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, he's not saying that her sins are forgiven because of the actions that she just committed. He's actually affirming in front of the whole room that her sins have already been forgiven. And they're scandalized by this. Who does this man think he is? Forgiving sins. See, they didn't recognize who Jesus was. But the woman did. Well, Luke never tells us how the story ends. We don't know how Simon responded to the parable. Did he weep and beg for forgiveness? Or did he get angry and kick Jesus out of his home? We don't really know. But that's actually the point. That's what Luke is trying to do. You see, Luke wants us to see ourselves in the story and to ask ourselves, do we take the posture of the Pharisee or of the woman? Because the posture that we take will determine everything about our faith. And what we find is that our ability to recognize our own sin and to accept God's forgiveness actually changes our attitude toward God, toward others, and toward ourselves. And here's how. First of all, if we're acting as a Pharisee, we tend to relate to God as a harsh judge rather than as a loving father. Does God judge? Absolutely he does. 
But God's default posture is one of a loving Heavenly Father who wants what's best for His children. He wants to give us good things. Even His discipline is an expression of His love. And when we relate to God as a harsh judge, then we approach life from the perspective that I need to get all of the rules right or God won't be happy with me. And our relationship with God is primarily primarily defined by our moral performance or our ritual performance, whether it's avoiding sin or doing all the right things, doing good things for God. But if we're like the woman, we primarily respond to God with gratitude. We recognize and we're able to internalize the grace of God so much that our actions then don't ignore the rules, but they actually go beyond the rules. Okay, and we know that this is true just by looking at, at real life. For instance, if I believe that the rules of marriage dictate that I get my wife a present for her birthday, which, by the way, is in a couple of weeks, so remind me, then I'll, I'll probably give her something nice. But if, my, if her birthday reminds me of just how blessed I am to have her in my life and how patient she's been with me throughout the years, then my motivation will go beyond just getting her something nice to something extravagant. Just like the woman went beyond the normal rules of decorum to welcome Jesus extravagantly. That's what gratitude and appreciation does. In our attitude toward God, our personal righteousness then will go beyond reluctant obedience and our worship will be from the heart and rather than being motivated by fear of punishment, will be motivated by the joy that we are the children of the king of the universe. There's a huge difference there. And even though sometimes the actions might look the same on the outside, the inward state of the heart is very, very different. But there's also a difference in our attitude toward other people when we understand our sin. Like the Pharisee, when we're motivated by performance and adherence to the rules, then we also expect that of other people. And this is fine except that it often causes us to separate ourselves from other people and and put ourselves in a different category than than sinners who aren't able to live up to the same standards that we do, who don't don't, um, achieve the same level of righteousness, and we can sometimes look at them with contempt, and then we separate ourselves from them, and we see them as being contagious. But when we remember that we've been forgiven much, Not only do we empathize with people caught in sin, but we want them to have the same freedom that we have found ourselves. The commentator Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, points out that most likely this woman didn't become a prostitute because she went to a career fair and saw a prostitute and convinced her to do it. She thought it was a good career opportunity. It's not usually how it happens. This is what he says. It was and is easy enough to dismiss such a person as immoral as well as unclean and deviant without grappling with the social realities faced by a woman, perhaps a freed woman, in other words, who was a slave but now became free, forced into the marketplace by her lack of attachment or identification with a man who prostitutes herself in order to live according to one of the very few options available to her. Or maybe she was a woman or girl sold into prostitution by her parents on account of economic misfortune. So just as when we talk about sin, not just as individual decisions, but systems that we get caught in, sin is looked at the same way here. Now I know that Pharisees will say, but you're making excuses for sin. Are you saying that this isn't sin? Not at all. 
It absolutely is. We can acknowledge sin, but at the same time acknowledge that there are realities in the world that push people into sins that they don't willingly choose to begin with. Okay, Take sex trafficking, for instance. Those who are caught up in it are just as much victims of sin as they are perpetrators. And we don't shame them for it because we recognize. And many people fight for their whole lives against a system that enslaves people. And if you believe the Bible, we believe that sin is something that enslaves people. Now this is a pretty clear example, but I think this is true for many sins. Now sometimes we do, sometimes we just rebel, sometimes we make choices. But many times people are caught in a system that doesn't seem to give them a whole lot of choice. And when we are fully aware of our own sin and we understand the forces that wage war on our souls, then we can better empathize with people who are caught in sin themselves. And then rather than condemn them, we move, them toward, we move toward them and we help them to deal with the realities that keep them enslaved because we've tasted and seen the freedom in Christ and because we've been freed from these things ourselves. And so we start to view other people differently when we know our own sin. And then finally, we recognize, when we recognize our own sinfulness and Jesus' willingness to forgive, it changes our attitude toward ourself. See, the Pharisees believed that they had earned God's grace, but the woman knows that her acceptance was based purely on God's grace and forgiveness. Today we're living in the shadow of a self-esteem movement that taught parents to tell your kids that they are amazing just the way they are. Okay, and well, the healthy thing about this is that it recognizes that we are all, as human beings made in the image of God, are, are valuable, that have dignity just by virtue of being humans. And that all is true and it's good. But Christianity actually diverges from our, common, uh, from our society today in this respect, that it also acknowledges that we are all fallen creatures. And none of us, and I mean none of us, is today what we were intended to be. And too often, this idea of building people's self-esteem leads us back into this performance mode because what we see is uh, this disconnect, this difference between what people are saying about us on the outside and what we feel and what we know on the inside. And so then we feel like we need to live up to that, but rather than changing the heart, we just change our outward actions so we look as good as they tell us that we are. And it drags us back into this turmoil of having to perform for other people's approval. But Jesus' message is different here. At the end of the story, Jesus works, uh, uses, um, speaks words of freedom to this woman. In verse 48, he says, your sins have been forgiven. And then later in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. Uh, go in peace. You're valuable because you're made in God's image. You're accepted by God, not because of your great moral performance, but because of his great love for you, love and grace that is greater than any sin. And it's this understanding of God and of yourself that allows you to live with an inner sense of peace. And it's out of this peace that, that, it, that, that grounds, uh, that, that's grounded in God's forgiveness that our worship flows. Our personal righteousness flows. Our desire for justice flows. Our actions toward our neighbors flows. 
And it completely changes the equation for us. Now, in a moment, we're going to practice something that, uh, for Christians, is the symbol that reminds us of the great lengths that God goes to for our forgiveness. We call it communion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we prepare for communion. But as they're coming, I want you to see that this is a call today to, to two different types of people. First, it's a call to those who believe that you're good enough, that God uh, has to accept you because of what you've done, and that you can make it on your own, that you're self-sufficient, that you don't really need his help. Now, I don't know of anybody in this room or probably watching online who would say that that's true, but sometimes we live that way. Sometimes that's the, the attitude of our heart. And today what I want you to do is I want to, to invite you to recognize and confess your sin, whether they're the sins of the flesh or the sins of religion, to confess your sins and understand your, uh, where you are before God. Second, there are some of you who fully recognize your sinfulness. In fact, you're overcome by the weight of your sin. And you feel more like the woman, except for maybe one thing. You're not sure if Jesus could ever really forgive you for what you've done. And so you're stuck in guilt and shame. Well, what I want you to know today is I want you to look to that woman and I want you to look to Jesus and to see the amazing grace and forgiveness that was given to her. I want you to know that Jesus radically forgives, that when we confess to God and we repent, that through Jesus Christ, God graciously and willingly and gladly forgives us and gives us freedom. And we're going to sing a song, and um, you can sing along if you want, or you can use this time just to meditate, to confess. We'll pray together a prayer of confession, and then we'll take communion together. Uh, but I just want you to take some time and, and ask yourself, okay, who am I in this story? Am I more like the Pharisee? Am I more like the woman? What's my relationship to sin and how do I understand the grace of God? So just take a few moments and do that as we prepare for communion. Heavenly Father, as we consider the sacrifice that you made for us, when we consider the great lengths that you went to to purchase our forgiveness and to show us that no matter how deep our sin, no matter how much we feel it, God, that we can still be forgiven, I pray that, that it would be that realization that would sink deep into our hearts today. God, for those of us who are tempted because we've been believers for a long time and we've lived respectable lives and have done well with all of the things that we're supposed to do, God, I pray against a, a spirit of self-righteousness. I pray against a, a spirit of, of, of thinking that we're good enough, that we deserve your grace, that we for, deserve your forgiveness, and that spirit that, that disconnects us from people who feel the weight of their sin or who have different sins than, than we do. God, I pray that we in humility could recognize our own sinfulness, but that that realization would not lead us into despair, but it would lead us into a greater appreciation and gratitude for what you did for us. And God, may our lives be motivated by that gratitude so that we don't just 
do what we're supposed to do, that we don't just follow the rules, God, but that we go in, in gratitude and in appreciation, that we go far beyond what you require of us. And I pray that we would also be able to see clearly those who are, are, are caught in sin. And rather than condemn, but to, but to move toward them, to help them, to help to free them from the things that hold them back and the systems that, that hold them down. And God, that we would see and know that you are our loving Heavenly Father and it would change everything about how we live. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this story and so many others that we see in the gospel that reminds us of the grace of Jesus and his great love for us. And may we live in light of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.